Okay, good afternoon. My name is Jeff Myron. I'm going to be moderating the next session. Uh, the title of this panel is Lessons from the Housing Credit Bubble. We have three panelists, and we will go in order and uh, have some time for questions as well. So our first panelist is Dr. Manuel Sanchez. He's currently a deputy governor at the Bank of Mexico, Mexico's central bank. Prior to his appointment there, he was a director of investment at Falanza, Mexico, a private equity unit of Banco Bilbao. Um, Dr. Sanchez has also served as their chief economist until 2004, served as the director general of the Center for Economic Analysis and Research at the Autonomous Technological Institute uh, in Mexico City, where he was a professor of economics. Dr. Sanchez has, le has lectured and taught at American and Mexican universities, such as Boston College and the University of Chicago. He's widely published in professional journal articles, in books, in op-eds, published in many uh, different outlets. He's been a consultant for numerous uh, corporations, international institutions, such as the IMF and the World Bank, and he holds a PhD from the best economics department in the world, the University of Chicago. Please help me welcome Dr. Sanchez. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, first of all, I would like to, to thank the Cato Institute, and particularly to my friend Jim Dorn, because uh, this is the third time he has invited me to participate in, in this uh, very distinguished uh, monetary conference. I'm very honored to be here, and this is, uh, I would like to argue that this is uh, one of the demonstrations that uh, the Cato Institute indeed is a global institute. So I, I, I thank the, the Cato Institute. Let me um, focus, on, focus my remarks on, on four um, issues. Uh, the first one has to do with the bubbles and the recurrent crisis that we usually have in, in, in market economies. This, uh, the impact that we just had the, from, and we are suffering right now, from the recent global crisis, which uh, uh, ended with the, the collapse of the bubbles, the credit and housing bubbles, has called the attention of policymakers to finding ways to pursue financial stability, and avoiding future collapses. To be realistic, the scope of such an objective should be properly bounded. Financial bubbles characterized by substantial rises in asset prices departing from previous trends that are suddenly interrupted by a sharp fall have been common in economic history. In market economies, asset price fluctuations and bubbles could be interpreted as unavoidable and even beneficial as they become the means of rewarding good choices and punishing bad decisions. One macroeconomic risk one has to recognize of asset price collapses is the possibility of a growth slowdown or even a, a recession. The empirical evidence of the effects of price falls in stock and currency markets is somewhat mixed. However, the likely negative real consequences of housing bursts appear to be clearer. Statistical analysis reveal that housing prices are strongly procyclical and that they are leading indicators of expansions. A second, potentially more serious cause of concern over large housing price fluctuations is that they, are frequently end, they have frequently ended in banking crises. These episodes may involve 
problems of liquidity and insolvency of certain financial institutions to the extent that the function of the, of the economy becomes impaired, for instance, if they produce a generalized panic or loss of confidence. A target of smooth asset price behavior is hardly attainable through economic policy, given the intrinsic uncertainty involved in financial transactions and the imperfect information policymakers have always at hand. More important, however, is the fact that such an objective is probably undesirable as it amounts to controlling risk and returns, thereby creating moral hazard and inhibiting innovation and growth. What does constitute a sound policy goal, in my view, is building conditions to ensure the continuous functioning of the basic financial system, particularly the banking system, without which the economy cannot work. This focus, of course, which requires a determination of what a basic system is, gives content to the objective of financial stability and crisis prevention, which takes me to the second point, the second part of my comments. As we know, a basic postulate of economics is that people always respond to incentives. Hence, to, re to reduce the probability of another big financial collapse, and always the only thing we can hope for is to lower the probability of such a big collapse, it is necessary to learn from experience by identifying the ultimate sources of the incentives that led to the crisis. And by this, I mean the environment that economic agents face in making decisions. And given this setting, private actions can be regarded as results, not as root causes of problems. Examples of the former in the crisis, in the recent crisis, are the high bonuses paid to bankers for placing securitized loans and the poor credit evaluation of these instruments made by rating agencies. For experience, let me classify the most commonly cited causes of the turmoil into cyclical and structural. In the first group, two contributing factors stand out. One refers to the environment of low interest rates in the years prior to the crisis. Authors are divided in stressing as the main source of the phenomenon of this phenomenon, either an expansionary monetary policy or capital inflows from emerging market uh, emerging markets to developed countries, uh, that is to say, the famous saving lot hypothesis. There is much debate on the significance of the possible deviations of the of United States monetary policy from the correct Taylor rule during 2002 and 2000 to 2005. However, I would like to say, at least in, after reading uh, the papers I read, that many empirical studies conclude that policy interest rates that were negative in real terms and deviated from traditional tailored rules in advanced economies did contribute to the gestation of the crisis. The verified channels include an increase in housing investment and prices, a stimulus to borrowing greater, um, stimulus to borrowing, greater risk taken by economic agents and banks, an increase in bank leverage and the loosening of lending standards, just to mention a few. On the other hand, I found that statistical evidence of a separate contribution of capital inflows to the crisis appears less conclusive. 
The other factor of cyclical conditions that uh, the other speakers have referred to more, more, uh, more uh, with, uh, very fluently encompasses policies aimed at promoting the expansion of lending through fiscal subsidies for borrowers, credit targets for banks, and government guarantees on loans, for example, to make housing more affordable for low-income people. A central lesson here is that economic policy should not become a source of problems. Expansionary monetary policy beyond optimal rules for a prolonged period of time and policies for artificially promoting credit expansion should, be, should never be uh, allowed to exist because at least they tend to produce inadequate incentives. Moreover, the structural factors behind the crisis refer to a poor regulatory and supervisory framework for intermediaries. One possible source of weakness stems from capitalization and liquidity standards that were not effective enough to avoid the crisis. A preventive, stronger set of requirements in terms of levels and composition with sufficiently broad scope is necessary to induce responsible behavior. Obviously, these restrictions may have an impact on the availability and cost of uh, price of credit, yet increased social benefits are expected to surpass the costs. For capitalization, the definition of capital should be narrowed to include only truly loss-absorbing items such as common equity. And in order to avoid judgment behind any risk weight allocation, it is advisable to seek high standards of capital relative to non-risk-weighted assets, including of balance sheet exposures, that is to say, the total leverage ratio. Also, buffers for bad times and contingent debt conversions into equity for tail risk situations are highly desirable. As for liquidity, although extreme versions of null maturity mismatch between the assets and liability of banks have proven historically impractical, I would argue that a more flexible and modern version of Simon's full reserve banking for retail deposits supporting the payment system should not, exclude, should not be excluded a priori. The recent agreement reached by the Basel Committee, known as Basel III, is a step in the right direction. Nevertheless, the new requirements may still prove insufficient to prevent crisis, given the relatively low target values the inclusion of components of lesser quality than common equity in tier one capital and other factors. Overcoming these limitations is, the, is of utmost importance considering the poor record of the Basel core principles for banking supervision in preventing financial problems in the past. However, the regulatory weakness that most likely led to excessive risk taking in this crisis was the ambiguous government net uh, safety net held out to investors and institutions. In particular, the too-big-to-fail problem is, is a well-known source of moral hazard that leads to the unpleasant outcome of promoting risk-taking with private rewards and socially shared costs. The only solution to dealing with this problem is to abolish the policy. This would imply foregoing the bailout capacity of authorities, of the authorities, perhaps through a legal structure and, treat, and treating all institutions alike in terms of standards and liquidation procedures. In the case of a failure, shareholders and unsecured creditors should, be, should fully absorb all costs. 
to counter possible externalities coming from the failure of any institution, a variable surcharge of cap on capital may be imposed based on an index of relevant variables in size, such as size and interconnected, interconnectedness. Now, let me move on the third part of my remarks, but I only have five minutes, so I have to allocate two and a half minutes to each one of the remaining two parts, and is that the need to, for corrective measures. Um, the need for, for this, uh, you know, the implementation of this preventive approach that I just outlined should help promote financial stability. However, um, there, is, there are always problems that can arise, and, and, and one can imagine many, many reasons for, for problems to arise down on the road. Uh, in addition to long history of recurrent financial calamities, which is by itself is a challenging precedent, there are all, all other reasons for not holding overly optimistic uh, expectations. So from, from this standpoint, it is necessary for authorities to stay vigilant in order to react in a timely way to early warnings of a possible financial crisis. This is clearly a daunting task as policymakers face obvious limitations in terms of any superiority of knowledge relative to market participants and willingness to implement policies to counter a likely imminent crisis. However, the crisis, the, the recent crisis, proved that the hands-off approach to dealing with the early warnings was too costly in terms of posterior instability and the unprecedented measures implemented to offset the effects of the resulting turmoil. Hence, in the light of the described limitations, I would argue that the need for corrective measures should be viewed as a second-best solution to problems to be used only to overcome deficiency in the preventive approach. Let me conclude with three points about the role of central banks. Uh, the current debate about the role of the central banks seem to, be, seem to be centered around three basic issues. The first one has, is regards the idea of mo that monetary policy should attempt to di directly control uh, financial booms that may lead to a crisis. The proponents of such a strategy, as you know, argue that central banks can raise the, their policy interest rates to prick uh, the asset bubbles. Um, I would basically agree, agree with other speakers this morning that that's a very difficult uh, case to make as a, for a task for a central bank. There are many reasons um, for arguing that. Uh, there are many disadvantages uh, that, ha that have that have to do with the lack of knowledge and, and the, even the, the moral hazard that the policymaker may, may generate at uh, trying to, at the end, smooth out the, the asset price uh, volatility. There is a second issue, and I'm, I'm going to finish with uh, this, with the second, with the third one, but that's just one minute ahead for the... Um, that con the second issue concerns what is referred to by some authors as the new central bank paradigm. In this view, it is claimed that central banks fail to detect the signs of the crisis and to implement measures to prevent it because their focus on price stability was too narrow. Accordingly, part of the problem was the use of incomplete mo economic models that do not incorporate crucial aspects of the financial sector. Although suggestions to improve performance are always helpful, including those regarding methodological shortcomings, the intended paradigm revision should be viewed with caution. Most central banks already have legal obligations re related to financial stability, so a mere change of status 
will not necessarily make much difference. Moreover, monetary decision-making, as you know, is only partly based on models, as it considers all relevant available information and combines this with judgment. And furthermore, the contribution of price stability to financial stability should not be underestimated. The worldwide conquest of inflation has been an outstanding achievement, which ha has substantially increased social welfare and eliminated common, a common source of banking crisis, especially in emerging economies such as Mexico, such as the one we witnessed in the mid-1990s. Price stability is a necessary condition, it's not a narrow focus goal, for avoiding many problems, including undue banking collapses. Those, however, this, however, doesn't preclude that the, need, the need for central banks to be involved in crucial aspects, uh, responsibilities aimed at promoting financial stability, applying their expertise in cooperation with other authorities. And the third issue centers on the implication of the unprecedented expansionary monetary stance adopted by the central banks of the developed countries, particularly the United States, in the sequel of, to the crisis. In addition to the complications from eventually implementing effective exit strategies once inflation risks emerge, this stance has induced investors to search for higher yield in the process of assuming more risk. The resulting capital movements have tended to inflate the price of certain assets, including the currencies of some emerging market economies. Even though the migration of funds could soon prove to be transitory, since 2009, the governments of various countries have been implementing measures intended to avert the appreciation of their currencies, including capital controls and interventions in the foreign exchange markets. The most important threat generated by these actions is a widespread movement toward protectionism that could hamper the sustained recovery of the world economy. Thus, it is preferable to completely avoid these measures. Thank you very much. Well, we're good. Thank you very much. Our second panelist is Peter Wallison. Mr. Wallison is the Arthur F. Burns Fellow in Financial Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and also the co-director of that program. He is a widely, widely regarded expert on banking, insurance, and securities regulation, a former counsel of the U.S. Treasury Department, as well as White House counsel under President Ronald Reagan, and author of Ronald Reagan, The Power of Conviction and the Success of His Presidency. Uh, Mr. Wallison currently holds a number of important uh, additional positions, co-chair of the Pew Financial Reform Task Force, a member of the Financial Crisis uh, Inquiry Commission, uh, and the Shadow Financial Regulation Committee. Uh, Mr. Wallison is actually unlike academics that I hang out with and many policy wonks held a real job. He was a partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher for uh, approximately 11 years. He holds a BA and a law degree from two institutions close to my heart, uh, from Harvard College and the Harvard Law School. Please welcome Mr. Wallison. Thank you, Jeff. The first, the first, you're the first person who's ever said holding a job as a lawyer is a real job. <laughs> it's more than being an academic. <laughs> well, I, law, lawyers love that. Um, Look, it's a really great honor to um, be here today and have an opportunity to talk to, this, talk to this group. This is a very important group from the standpoint of the things I'm going to say today. So I'm going to take some liberties, if I can, with the title of this program. Um, I'm not going to talk about what lessons we can learn from the financial crisis 
or the credit crisis. I'm going to talk about what, what we can learn about the financial crisis. Because to me, as a policy wonk, um, I am very much concerned about the policies that we adopt as a result of the thoughts we have about what caused a certain kind of policy. I, I call this narratives. Uh, many people uh, refer to things that influence Washington as narratives. And I'm going to talk in my discussion today about three narratives uh, for what may have caused the financial crisis. Now, the reason this is important is, in my view, that what we believe about what caused the financial crisis is very much a determinant of what uh, we actually do as a matter of public policy to address it. And the belief that certain things caused the financial crisis, such as lack of regulation or deregulation or predatory lending or excessive risk-taking or a lack of um, uh, risk management, things, things of that kind, uh, result in things like the Dodd-Frank Act. And when we have now, at least in the House, a group of uh, legislators who have a different view of might, what might have caused the financial crisis, and all of whom voted against the Dodd-Frank Act, there is some opportunity to make some real changes there. But to make those changes, I think we have to have a strong underpinning of understanding about why the Dodd-Frank Act was not accurately uh, directed at what caused the financial crisis. And for that reason, we really have to understand what caused the financial crisis. So to me, the most important thing we can learn about the financial crisis is what caused it. Um, why did the financial system simply go haywire in 2008? And if we believe in free markets, and I'm going to overstate this just a little bit, but if we believe in free markets, we have to answer this question, or we can give up on free markets. Because what happened here has been so influential in our politics and in our view of the financial system that we really have to address it. We cannot let the Dodd-Frank Act uh, be the final say about what actually caused this financial crisis, just as letting certain ideas about what caused the Great Depression prevail uh, in, in understanding what we do when we attempt to um, address a recession or something like it. Now, as an aside, because this is a monetary conference, um, I would just mention that it is not my belief that monetary policy was enough to cause the financial crisis. And that is a very common thought among people, that low interest rates in the early 2000s did that. I don't believe so. It is entirely possible that it created the bubble. But we have to distinguish the bubble from what the bubble contained. Because when bubbles collapse, or how long they last, are very influential in the ultimate effect that they have on the financial system when that collapse occurs. I'll talk about three. I'm rushing here a little bit, I know, because we only have 10 or 12 minutes. So um, uh, I'm sorry I'm going to just proceed along. Uh, and that is, uh, we, I'm going to talk about three different kinds of narratives, all, all of which I think have been pretty influential with people. Um, and, but they, they are quite different. And what you adopt as your narrative for what caused the financial crisis will determine how you look at, we'll say, the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, the first one is one that was developed by Martin Bailey 
and Douglas Elliott at the Brookings Institution, which I, I think is a fairly sophisticated and interesting one. And their view, it was an idea mentioned in some respects uh, during, the, during his speech by John Taylor, and that is that uh, the great moderation was, in fact, the underlying cause for the financial crisis. And I'll explain why they view it that way. Second, the, the very common view, the one we hear all the time in the media, is that it was caused by greed, lack of regulation, uh, un, uh, which unleashed the tendency of free markets to produce bubbles, chaos, and ultimately collapse. Um, there's, a, there's an awful lot of this that you can see in the Dodd-Frank Act itself. Um, this we recognize as the narrative of the left, and I'll address that also um, in, my, in my talk. Then finally, um, something unprecedented, something um, that is not natural to free markets caused the financial crisis. That's the third narrative. I'm going to talk about that. That happens to be the one, as many of you know, that I believe is true, and that is that in this case, uh, the actions of the U.S. government, the housing policies of the U.S. government caused the financial crisis. Okay, let me start first with the uh, Bailey-Elliott uh, narrative. It starts somewhat unpromisingly by listing a, a lot of different failings that occurred, and all these will, will sound familiar to you, ineffective risk management, poor regulation, flawed rating agency models, predatory lenders and predatory borrowers, and credulous home buyers who thought that the home prices would continue uh, to rise forever. Um, at this point, you might think that this is just a perfect storm theory, but it is not. What they are saying is that um, the great moderation, uh, the period between about 1982 and about 19, uh, 1997, when we had very few, very serious crises, very few, um, very few recessions, reduced people's normal risk aversion. That up to that time, people were naturally, investors in particular, were naturally risk averse. But this long period um, of moderation gave them the sense that we had finally conquered the business crisis, uh, the business cycle. And if we'd uh, if we'd finally conquered the business cycle, then actually risk-taking was not as risky as they had thought before. And that, they believe, caused all of the other things that I mentioned before as the, as the things that we noticed in the financial crisis. So the underlying cause was the sense that risk aversion was no longer um, as important as it had been in the past. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on the narrative of the left, as I described it before. We hear enough of that, as I think, on the news every day. Um, but I would like to just point out that the underpinning of this theory is that private markets always go off the rails unless they are tempered by regulation. The Great Moderation was a difficult period for these people for that reason. Uh, but the financial system always righted itself, and that was something that um, troubled them. The Dodd-Frank Act is the ideal set of legislation that one would use to respond to um, the, the financial crisis if you believed what I said, and that is that free markets will always uh, go off the rails at some point because they, are natu they naturally tend toward collapse and crisis unless uh, they are tempered by government action. And 
what the uh, Dodd-Frank Act did, of course, was hand over huge amounts of control, unprecedented amounts of control, um, to the administrative state. And uh, that will uh, introduce an awful lot of politics and administrative restrictions, regulation, um, additional costs that come from that. Um, now, the final narrative is the one I, I am quite partial to myself, and that is, and I want to mention first because Jeff mentioned the fact that I'm a member of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. This is not um, the opinion of the commission. I'm not saying it, it won't be, <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying it is not the opinion of the commission. It's just my view. Um, and I covered this in some detail if you were here at last year's, I think it was last year's conference, but it was a conference last year at Cato. And I talked about it in detail. Now, I think the work I've done since then has made that case seem to me much stronger. The main difference between what I talked about then, which was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and their, uh, their introduction of subprime and Alt-A, that is, other very risky mortgages into the financial system, has really been strengthened a lot by what I've discovered in further research, which is that the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, was, after it was authorized by uh, the, the Government-Sponsored Enterprise Act of 1992, which um, gave new authority to regulate Fannie and Freddie, but also imposed affordable housing requirements on that, HUD um, used the powers that it was given that, in that act uh, to affect affordable housing. How, how much time do I have? In? Six, seven, Jeff. How much? Six, seven minutes. Oh, good. Okay. Used, used the, the powers that they were given in that act to put Fannie and Freddie in competition with FHA and in competition with the banks that were required to make such loans under the Community Reinvestment Act uh, to f buy, acquire loans from one class of people, and that is people who didn't otherwise have easy access to home credit because they were at or below the median income in this country. So we concentrated a lot of buying uh, activity on this one population, FHA, Fannie and Freddie, and the banks that were required to make these loans under CRA. That caused uh, a, what you might call an underpricing of risk, because to get these mortgages, which they were required to get under under government mandate, government edict, uh, meant that they didn't really care about what they had to pay for them. They had to have those mortgages. And so they paid up for the mortgages, and they underpriced the risk, risk fantastically. So we had a huge number, which I will talk about in a moment, of mortgages in our financial system in 2008. But let me give you an, a, just one paragraph quote from dozens of such quotes that you can find in the record of what the Department of Housing and Urban Development was saying at the time that they were raising the affordable housing requirements for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so you can get a sense of how much they were responsible, government policy was responsible for all of this. I'm, and I'll quote now, just it's a few sentences. Millions of Americans with less than perfect credit who cannot meet some of the tougher underwriting requirements of the prime market for uh, for reasons such as inadequate income documentation, limited down payment or cash reserves, or the desire to take more cash out in a refinancing than conventional loans allow, rely on subprime lenders for access to mortgage financing. 
if the GSEs, that is Fannie and Freddie, if the GSEs reach deeper into the subprime market, more borrowers will benefit from the advantages that greater stability and standardization create. In other words, we want Fannie and Freddie to get deeper into that market by more of those mortgages. This is only one statement out of, as I say, dozens. And all of them were addressed to the same idea, and that is if we are ever going to make credit available to people at or below the median income in this country, we are going to have to depreciate the underwriting standards for mortgages. Um, so it appears that HUD, as a policy, forced depreciation in mortgage underwriting standards so that credit would be available to low-income borrowers who couldn't otherwise afford down payments or had blemished credit. HUD set up Fannie and Freddie in competition with FHA and with the banks, as I indicated, who were required to make similar kinds of loans under the Community Reinvestment Act. As a result, there was a bubble. The bubble lasted 10 years. Normally, in an, in an ordinary market, and we had several housing bubbles, 1979 and 1989, they would deflate in about three years. And of course, the reason for that is that in a bubble, many people start taking out loans they can't afford. And as a result, that those loans eventually start to, to um, fail. So the bubble comes to a halt and eventually collapses. This bubble lasted 10 years, from 1997 to 2007, because one of the major players in this market was not interested in profit. It was interested in social policy, and that is the U.S. government. And so by pumping as much money as they pumped in through Fannie and Freddie and FHA and through the requirements placed on insured banks, the result was that we had a bubble that lasted 10 years, and by 2008, there were 27 million subprime and Alt-A mortgages in our financial system, 19 million of which were held or were guaranteed by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, and um, the uh, banks subject to CRA. These loans, of course, were weak loans. They were ready to default as soon as the bubble came to an end. It came to an end in 2007. An enormous number, unprecedented number of failures occurred at that point, frightened the devil out of the, um, the securitization market and out of holders and buyers, otherwise buyers of securities uh, that were based on mortgage-backed, uh, more, uh, usually uh, on, based on subprime loans. They fled from the market. That caused uh, most of the financial institutions that were holding these instruments, even though they were rated AAA, to look very weak because there was no market for them. If you marked them to market, you didn't have much in the way of capital left. So this is the cause, I think, of the financial crisis. So it looks to me as though the financial crisis was caused by U.S. government housing policy, not by the other two narratives that I talked about, not by a general loss of, of uh, concern about risk, general loss of risk aversion, not by monetary policy al alone, and uh, not by uh, a lack of regulation or deregulation. Any of these, all of those things were present in some sense in the economy we were looking at in 2008, but they paled in significance uh, to what the government was doing. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Our third panelist is Mark Calabria. 
Dr. Calabria is the Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato in 2009, he worked for but tried to undermine the dark side of the force, meaning the U.S. Uh, Senate, U.S. Senate, in particular the U.S. Uh, Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Um, in that position, Dr. Calabria studied issues related to housing, mortgages, finance, economics, uh, and other matters, uh, working in particular for ranking member Richard Shelby uh, of Alabama. Prior to the service on Capitol Hill, Dr. Calabria had served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and held a variety of other positions, including an affiliation at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies. He has extensive experience evaluating uh, legislative and other sort of regulatory proposals on many issues, in particular on, on how government policy toward low and moderate income housing okay, affects the real estate market and the economy generally. Um, and he holds a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Welcome. Uh, th thank you, Jeff. Um, I'm not going to talk about this today, but I want to say for a moment before I start, as someone who did spend the build-up to the crisis and the crisis on Capitol Hill and in the administration, everything that Peter said I saw is true. And, I mean, I could not overemphasize the number of meetings I was in with my colleagues from the other side of the aisle in meetings of the administration in which it was repeatedly said Freddie and Fannie need to take on and standardize the subprime market. I heard it as a drumbeat. So uh, everything that Peter said rang true to me, brought back lots of terrible memories. Uh, but, you know, so for that, it is a real honor. And I want to emphasize as well, for those of us who were trying to save the system ahead of time in terms of mortgage finance, uh, Peter at that time, and still it was a great ally, having Peter on the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission is really the only thing that gives me any hope that they might actually come out with a reasonable report. Now, that said, uh, I also want to say what a, what a privilege it is to follow uh, Manuel. When One of the things he made me think about when he was talking about Basel is that I don't really think it's a coincidence that the parts of our capital standards that we are most favorable toward, mortgages and sovereign debt, are the areas of our financial system where we saw the biggest problems. So one of the things I would add in terms of subsidies to housing are the explicit relative capital ratios and weightings that, to me, push our banking system into being more heavily concentrated in housing. And I think that's an important part of it that really needs to be recognized, uh, and that needs to be changed. Um, but that said, I'm going to talk about a very different sliver of this. Almost everything that Peter talked about, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, CRA, I see as demand-side policies. And so I'm going to talk about what I think is one very straightforward, simple thesis, which is a necessary condition for housing bubbles or any asset bubble is you need supply rigidities as well. And that's what I'm going to talk about is the supply side of the market. Uh, and that's not to undermine or say that any of these other things weren't incredibly important because I believe that they were. Uh, and I would argue that you need to have these supply size rigidities to, in order for the demand ex expansion of the demand to actually have an impact and get us into a bubble. Uh, Peter talked about three narratives. I want to talk first about three possible outcomes for any sort of demand shock. Now, the first outcome is demand expands, supply extends proportional. You have housing prices basically remain stable. I would argue that this characterizes fairly closely the housing bubble of the 1920s. Prices were fairly stable up and down, but fairly stable throughout that time, even though you had a very large construction boom. The second possibility is that supply actually increases more than demand. 
And I think that that characterizes most of the housing bubbles, most of the housing booms we've had uh, post-war, whether it's the mid-60s, the late-60s, the early-70s, the booms in the middle of the eight, late and early 80s. Uh, in all of these booms, real housing prices after the boom were lower than real housing prices before the boom. You had a supply come on that was sufficient to offset all of that. Uh, and the third outcome is that your supply expands in a sense that is less than sufficient to meet demand, uh, particularly in the short run. Uh, and I think it's worth noting that even though we've seen a close to 30 percent decline in house prices, house prices today in real terms are still above the preceding bubble in 1989, which was the previous peak. Uh, whether that leads me to believe they have further to go or not is a separate question, but it does lead me to believe that supply conditions have greatly changed. Uh, one of the things that I thought is thinking of interesting and, and, and puzzling in a sense, uh, our luncheon speaker, Professor Taylor, has estimated that housing starts would have been significantly lower had we followed a Taylor rule. And the excess housing starts are about 40% above what housing starts would normally be. That's a pretty large supply response, in my opinion. But the thing that makes me scratch my head initially is we have this massive expansion of supply, but you also have an environment of escalating prices. So why is that? Why would supply at the same time expand in such a way that prices are also being run up? Uh, and the conclusion I reach is that we had several different housing markets. My argument is that you had supply increase in essentially places like Texas, and you had price increase in essentially places like California. Uh, and I think this is an important difference. Uh, Fannie and Freddie were everywhere. Monetary policy was everywhere. We had the same monetary policy in California that we had, had in Texas, but we did not have the same outcome. So what is the differences between that? And I guess I would note as well, that Texas also had stronger demand fundamentals. So one cannot say it's simply more people were moving to California and that's what drove the housing market because that was not the case. Uh, and I will also note uh, prices in Texas have yet to fall. They have continued going upward throughout this entire crisis. Uh, and I want to note as an aside, I'm going to kind of use a Texas-California dichotomy uh, you can see a cluster of states that follow the same pattern. So these are, these are not selective uh, situations, but they are actually fairly representative of two different areas. Uh, and my thesis here is that the last 10, 15 years, several cities and states have spent a tremendous amount of time erecting artificial barriers to supply. Uh, and you basically have a case where in the short run, essentially, supply is vertical. So when the demand shock hits, supply shoots up. Um, one of our uh, adjunct scholars here, Randy O'Toole, has identified 18 states as having had housing bubbles. Every single one of these states has some sort of urban growth boundary and some sort of restriction on supply. Among those states that did not have bubbles, only one had any sort of growth management law at the state level, uh, and that was a relatively recent phenomenon and appears non-binding. Uh, you can look at other measures of supply elasticity. One of the things I think that's interesting to look at is the actual time it takes before the builder gets a permit to the time he's handing over the keys to somebody. From 2004 to 2007, in the western part of the United States, this time increased by over 50 percent. So it became much more difficult, even as demand was coming on board, for actual builders to essentially build and to meet. I think that's one of the difference with previous bubbles, why they burned out so quickly. It's because supply could come on so quickly uh, and bring prices back down. We simply did not see that. Um, so in some sense, I would say if California had been Texas, we wouldn't be in this mess. Um, but, you know, I think that you have to look at that in the, in the sense of the GSEs, the FHA, 
That's a, I see that as a slightly different characteristic than monetary policy with an important difference. All the federal housing policies, the fiscal policies, largely pushed additional demand. There were some small policies that increased supply, but they, in my opinion, were largely kind of rounding errors. Whereas monetary policy, in my opinion, is a different little of a puzzle because it has the potential to encourage both an increase in demand and supply. Uh, and that by lowering interest rates, you're not only improving housing affordability, but you're also making production look more attractive to the construction, to the home builder. So in some sense, uh, while I think that an expansion of loose monetary policy will result in a higher quantity, it's not clear what the outcome for price would be, that that would be indeterminate to the extent because monetary policy itself does increase supply while it increases demand. Uh, and so that said, my point being the earlier bubbles, I think that's tended to balance out. And why that hasn't tended to balance out today is because of the regulatory issues. Uh, and one of the, I think, other lessons here is that a housing bubble does not need to be national in that sense to have a national impact. I think we all remember, uh, and I, I'll probably misquote it, but uh, Chairman uh, Greenspan at the time was fond of saying that, you know, we have local housing markets, you know, you don't see a national housing bubble. And I would argue, well, we didn't really have a national housing bubble. We had regional housing bubbles that were so big in their impact that they had impact on the national financial market, not the national housing market. In fact, if you subtracted basically California, Florida, and Nevada, and Arizona, the housing bubble goes away for the most part. Um, so I think that conclusion, that small uh, regional housing markets would balance out and we didn't need to worry about that, has proven false. Uh, I think the observers are once again half right in that these uh, bubbles were regional, but their impacts were truly national because the prices got so out of line with fundamentals. Uh, and I think that this is an important point to make about any asset market, is that a potentially small segment of that market can drive the overall market. Uh, you know, one of the one of the better examples of this is that despite the impact of the dot-com bubble bursting on the overall stock market, at no point were Internet stocks ever more than about 6% of total market capitalization of U.S. public companies. So this was a pretty small segment of the market that drove the entire part of the market. By comparison, California was about 10% of the mortgage market. So you could see that this small part of the market drove the overall market as well. Uh, and I'm going to talk just a second. I go into a little more detail on this in the, in the paper because I want to make a general point about supply constraints uh, is that they don't necessarily need to be government-imposed. Uh, the dot-com bubble, in my opinion, is a perfect illustration of this. Uh, essentially, the supply constraint in the dot-com bubble was most of the initial public offerings had very long lockup periods in which – 80, 85 percent of the actual stock was locked up so that later on when the supply hit the market, you saw a drive down in price from that. And if you look at the performance of Internet stocks versus the letting onto the market of uh, lock up, locked up stocks, you see the price effect and you see the supply effect there. So it's not simply a matter of government rigidities all the time. I think that's the important case in the housing market. Uh, another particular difference that I think is most crucial uh, and gets to some of Peter's points, which is – we didn't – the dot-com losses were not transferred directly to the taxpayer, and this is an important point between, uh, I think, other bubbles and housing bubbles, which is, for the most part, the risks undertaken by the GSEs – and I would say this is true for FHA and true for CRA to an extent – is that all of these risks were some degree underwritten by the taxpayer. And I think this is a crucial point. I don't believe that Freddie and Fannie could have gotten as out of control if there wasn't that implicit guarantee – if the people who had been lending them money, creditors had seen them 
change in their portfolio and the risk that they were taking in a normal market, the price of their credit should have increased, and that should have constrained their growth. Uh, it clearly did not. So I think one of the things that needs to be kept in mind is it's not simply mandates, because the mandates are made effective by the guarantee, uh, and those need to be kept together. Um, and I would think this is an incredibly important part. Not, I'll note as an aside – for banks, it's very similar. I think the only reason that CRA has ever worked is because you have deposit insurance. Without it, CRA itself would be ineffective. Uh, so as we go forward and talk about how do we reform our mortgage finance system, I think a general principle that needs to be that the capital behind our mortgage finance system needs to be at risk. We need to make sure that the suppliers of credit to our system feel market discipline and recognize the possibility of losses, because I believe in the absence of that, uh, any of these other possibilities will still come along. Well, thank you. Oh. We have time for some questions. Gentleman here. <laughs> You're relieving it for me. Yeah, please state your name and affiliation. Thanks. I'm Brian Desilitz, a doctoral candidate at University of Barcelona, but uh, more relevant to this discussion, a former staffer of uh, chief economist office at one of the monoline insurers that uh, insured all of Bear Stearns' portfolio. Um, my, uh, my first point was that if from the left uh, these Fannie Mae, Freddie uh, initiatives were social policy, uh, I think from the right it was uh, just another seen as another uh, evolution from the deregulation of the 80s, uh, expanding the financial sector, expanding you know, innovative finance, innovative financial products. And if there hadn't been a, a burst, uh, a lot of people on that side would be taking credit for it. The sec second point was, and I know this from helping to manage the portfolio there at, uh, at Radian, um, these mortgages were originated, you know, the most of them in 04 in the low interest rate environment. Uh, and those people paid their mortgages for two years. So 06, when there were 228s, you know, fixed for two years, then switch. When they reset in 06 with the higher rate, that's when the defaults began, and that's uh, when the snowball began. So I think down to the level of the financial product uh, that was sold uh, really could have uh, prevented a lot of this. I mean, you know, the unemployment rate coming up would, would have had another effect, but 30-year fixed mortgages, uh, a lot of those mortgages would not have defaulted. So, just you, Peter, you want to comment on that? Oh, yeah. Uh, just very, very briefly, yeah. If you if you look at two two thousand four, and after that, um, you can you can see those things happening. And it's odd that you mentioned two thousand four because that was the about the first year that Bear Stearns really got heavily into this. The it is not correct that uh, Wall Street had any significant involvement in the securitization of subprime loans until about two thousand two. That was the first year when they showed up. They had forty seven billion total out of a total in that year of $135 billion in securitized subprime loans. The other securitizers were Countrywide, AmeriQuest, names you've, you've all heard. So the, the th important thing to keep your eye on is what percentage of the total number of these bad loans were um, uh, uh, AAA securities that had been securitized by, the, by Wall Street and by Countrywide and so forth. And that is less than one-third, two-thirds. 19 million of the 27 million were on the government's balance sheet, which indicates very clearly who wanted them. And uh, they're created because someone wanted them. Good gentleman over here. 
you want can direct your question, analyst. A general general statement. I just particularly regard to what was just said that uh, when the uh, the monolines requested the paperwork behind the tapes, they found out up to eighty percent discrepancy between the loans that were described on the tapes and what was described in the loan documentations. The the I agree with both of you gentlemen in terms of the supply and the demand, but there was also a tremendous demand from the part of the investors who were willing to look the other way in order to get this paper. Uh, Other question? Well, I, it wasn't a question. We try, to, <laughs> we try to get you to pose a question. If someone wants to respond, that's fine. You know, I, I, will make, I, will make one, I will make a couple comments. One, I do think it's worth remembering during the height of the bubble, Fannie and Freddie were the marginal borrower. They bought about 40% of the new issuance of private label subprime securities, and they clearly didn't care what was in them. Uh, so, you know, it, and they got housing goals for it as well. Now, I think on the other side, it's important to remember as well, and this goes back to the initial question, one of the ways in which I believe the problems at Freddie and Fannie were transmitted to the rest of the financial sector is the rest of the financial sector essentially treated Freddie and Fannie debt as if it was treasuries. I mean, they were a third of the repo market. The collateral was Freddie and Fannie's. And once that started to spread, I think that that spread uh, problems elsewhere. Uh, it's also worth remembering in the case of Bear Stearns, about a half of Maiden Lane 1 assets are Freddie and Fannie securities. So they were buried throughout the financial system. So once there was a problem at Freddie and Fannie, uh, I think that was going to spread throughout the system. And I will end with saying, uh, I think regardless of, and this is my, I might disagree with a little bit some of the narrative that Peter focuses on, I think even if Freddie and Fannie had done uh, 20% down uh, A-quality paper, the fact that they were leveraged on the securitization business over 200 to 1, and, and that, that alone to me means you're going to implode when the housing cycle turns. <clears throat> Peter, Peter Whitney, American University. I'm very convinced by Peter Wallison's description. So my question for him is, how would he uh, deal with Fannie and Freddie now? How would he end them? How fast? And I have a question from the uh, bank governor from Mexico. Do you had a, did you have a Fannie and Freddie, and did you suffer, or, or a HUD, or did you ha- a, a, have or escape these type of things? Some countries escape. Thank you. Manuel, you want to go first? Okay. Uh, we, we were lucky this time. <laughs> we have something close to funny, funny May, but the securitization market is very, very much in in the beginning of uh, its uh, history. I would say. Uh, let me let me say that uh, you know one of the remarks that brought me something related to what we learned from the previous crisis. We we learned in the hard way. Uh, that negative amortization products are really a terrible idea. <laughs> and, uh, and now, without any regulation, no bank in Mexico has either, well, almost no bank in Mexico offers a variable uh, rate mortgage spontaneously, not, not because there is a regulator telling them to, not to do it. And there is no negative amortization in any of the mortgage products because of experience. So uh, this time, I think, because, you know, the, going back to the question, because the, you know, uh, the market was just big, 
know, a little more, very much underdeveloped, these sophisticated uh, products didn't uh, do any any harm in the in, in our economy. Thank you. So, Peter, I assume your answer is you need two matches and to the end of business today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, let's see. The, uh, the, how do you end Fannie and Freddie? The important thing is to understand that Fannie and Freddie today are vital to the financing of homes. And so we can't just go in with a meat axe and end Fannie and Freddie. But there is a way to do it when the securitization market returns to normal. It is not normally functioning today. When it does... It should be possible to reduce the conf what is called the conforming loan limit. That is the, the size of the mortgages that Fannie and Freddie can buy. Um, and they are different slightly in from uh, wealthy markets or high-priced markets to medium-priced markets. But you can reduce that legislatively or you could reduce it administratively. I prefer a, a steady reduction of about $50,000 per year or per half year so that gradually Fannie and Freddie are reduced in the, in the kinds of loans they can buy. And I believe after the securitization market returns, then the private market will pick up everything over what Fannie and Freddie can do. We had such a market before. It was called the jumbo market. And what we have to do is just increase the size of the jumbo market by uh, pushing down further what Fannie and Freddie can buy. That's a short answer. There's much more complexity in all of this, but that's the way to do it, it seems. I want to add a, add a short comment as well, which is uh, to some extent the replacement for Freddie and Fannie can be essentially the source of funding for Freddie and Fannie today. And what I mean by that is about four-fifths of the funding for Freddie and Fannie comes from the rest of the financial system. Now, of course, they would have to hold more capital, but I think we would like to have as, as a general rule that if you're backed by the taxpayer, you hold the same amount of capital regardless of who you are for the same particular asset. Uh, and if the banking system could have a trillion dollars in Freddie and Fannie debt, it doesn't seem to be why they can't have a trillion dollars in mortgages. And the same goal goes for the pension and life insurance industry that has a trillion dollars in Freddie and Fannie debt. So much of this should be able to shrink back, and maybe Peter would agree with me this as well, which is I hope going forward we actually have a smaller mortgage market than the one we've had. I do. Great. <laughs> Gentleman in the purple tie. Uh, John Bernalson with uh, Armored Wolf. Um, so I had a question for the panelists who were describing this in terms of the uh, housing subsidies and the malfunction here within the U.S. market, which, which I have a lot of sympathy for. But, but obviously this was a global crisis, and, and many people who question that thesis will say, well, we had problems in China and Australia and, uh, you know, Mexico and Switzerland, U.K., Spain, Greece, etc. So if you could address that. The other quick question I had for Mark, um, if the, the real fallout of the crisis is not financial in nature but is real in nature, could someone argue that constraining housing building in California might ultimately put us in a better place in 2013 than, than if they had built another you know, 500,000 McMansions? And, and I think to some extent both your questions are, are, are related to a degree because uh, you did see very large housing bubbles across the world. And in many sense why they did not end the same way is because they haven't deflated. In most of Europe, the supply conditions are far more inelastic than they are in the U.S. Uh, now 
you know, to me, it's a public policy question. I mean, ultimately, here at the Cato, we believe if you own property, you should be able to do what you want with it. <laughs> so having the government tell you you can't build houses uh, and constrain that. If you live in a country where the crown owns all property in name, it's a little tougher. Uh, but that said, the trade-off is between what do you want affordable housing? To, do you want housing to be relatively affordable? Do you want to be able to build it? Uh, I think... Yes, if the rest of the country looked like California, we'd st- we would today have very high house prices. They wouldn't have come down as much as they would say in Nevada, uh, but I'm not sure we would necessarily be better off by that situation. Uh, but to emphasize again on your first question, um, why I would say some of the problem that we exported around the world was the large purchase of mortgage-backed securities prime and subprime that were bought by the rest of the world that were U.S.-based. But much of the rest of the world did have pretty big housing bubbles, and some, such as Spain and Ireland, had housing bubbles that made ours look small. They weren't created by the U.S. Congress. No, they weren't. And this is why why I would say uh, I disagree. I I don't think it's necessarily a disagreement as as much as a different emphasis. I would probably put more weight on the role of monetary policy, I think, than Peter would. But I think we would both 100 percent agree that Freddie and Fannie were prime culprits in this. Gentleman back there. Consultant, uh, this is a, uh, a question, I guess, uh, maybe for more for Peter and Mark, uh, and that is, we've had an enormous amount of securitization, and uh, uh, Peter talked about the potential revival of the securitization market. Is part of the has part of the problem been, and part of the solution going forward, is that we should have more portfolio lending and less securitization, so that uh, uh, lenders, uh, in effect, have to eat their uh, uh, eat their cooking. Uh, and to do to get to that point, uh, do we need to see uh, innovations like uh, covered bonds? And uh, to what extent are the new Basel III capital standards going to work against portfolio lending and actually stimulate another round of potentially uh, uh, dangerous, risky uh, securitization practices? Okay. Um, first, I'd, I'd like to address the portfolio question, um, and that is that uh, portfolio lending is never going to be enough to sustain our housing market. We have to have something that supplements it substantially. It's just too large. The banks are already too much involved in this market. 55% of all bank-related lending is to the housing or uh, real estate market in some way. That's a cyclical market. Every time we have a housing problem, we have a banking problem. So we have to address that. And the way to do it is through securitization. Now. There's nothing wrong with securitization per se as long as what is being securitized is a sound instrument. If you are securitizing a subprime mortgage, you've got a different problem. And so what we have to assure is that the instruments that are securitized are good. Now, under the Dodd-Frank Act, there is a provision in there that provides for a qualified residential mortgage established by the regulators. And if they were to go back to the standards that we had before the affordable housing crisis, uh, affordable housing um, requirements were laid on Fannie and Freddie in 1992 and required that there be a 10 to 20 percent down payment, people who have relatively low debt-to-income ratios have a job, have, have income, things like that, um, that, that would do a lot of good because 
the subprime, uh, the subprime market was the problem. The jumbo market, although it suffered losses along with everything else, um, is coming back. So what we, what we have to do is just make sure that what we are, are allowing into the securitization world is uh, a, a solid prime kind of mortgage. I, I would like to just turn to the question that the gentleman asked just um, a moment ago, because I think there is an answer to that. $1.8 trillion of the, of the bad mortgages, there are about $4.5 trillion total outstanding, uh, that was subprime and all day. $1.8 trillion of that were privately securitized. That was about eight million mortgages privately securitized. They were AAA largely in one way or another. They were CDOs, that sort of thing. They failed very quickly as soon as, as, soon as investors understood that there were an enormous number of delinquencies going on in the U.S. market. And they were held all over the world by financial institutions everywhere. So it was really the U.S. market that caused, that was the trigger for the financial crisis worldwide because so many German banks and French banks and on, on and on were holding these things. That triggered, of course, a, a crisis of confidence, a panic. And the panic is what was really responsible for everything that followed. But ultimately, the underlying financial cause, to me, was the U.S. government's housing policy. Time for a couple more. Gentleman at the back. Hi, Mike Ehrlich from the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And this is really for Dr. Sanchez. Um, you spoke uh, favorably about Basel III. You called it a step in the right direction, although I think I detected in your conversation that maybe uh, the proposals, that original proposal came out in December were more to your liking, that they got sort of watered down. Um, I also want to sort of ask you, though, about what do you think about the, the, uh, the quantitative ruling, the black line law rules that uh, Dr. Reinhardt, Professor Reinhardt was talking about earlier um, as – possible alternatives or solutions or maybe enhancements to Basel III, the, the 50% uh, you know, uh, margin requirements, the, the black line Glass-Steagall laws, things like that as, 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 as new deterrents to further crises. Yes, I refer to, to the Basel uh, agreement as, an, as, a, as a step in the, the, the right direction because it is uh, requiring, requiring ba banks to, to hold higher levels of uh, of capital, and, and for the first time, it's also requiring a, a, a simple uh, leverage uh, ratio requirement. Yet, uh, I think it is um, it is always possible to argue that uh, the composition of of the tier one capital, for instance, is not as pure as one would like to have. That is to say, it has some components other than common equity. And also, it is perhaps uh, easy to conclude that a uh, three percent leverage ratio is is, is is too low to to you know to restrain uh, the you know the, the, the restaking of banks. But in general, that's uh, that's open to, to 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 exploration. I think the Basel Committee is is, is trying to get better, higher, stronger standards now. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I, I got the other part of the, the question. So in, in the dot-com, there was a discussion that that did not transmit to the rest of the market. In part, that was because there was a 
no more than 50% leverage when you were buying stocks. When you're buying stocks, there was 50% cap, uh, you know, you could legal, just a black line law, an arbitrary distinction, not really market-based, as many say Basel II regulations were. And so these non-market-based rules, these, uh, what I think Professor Reinhardt called quantitative rules, kind of maybe arbitrary, even dumb rules, um, are actually stop, are me- mechanisms to stop transmission through this, uh, of these crises through the market. Well, I, I think the, the, what we want to, we have to assure is that the banking system do, doesn't get into trouble after, you know, granting too much credit to, for people to, to get into, into the stock market. So the, one of the points that I made in, in my presentation is that uh, we don't want to worry about assets per se. We don't want to worry about asset fluctuations per se because they are natural and they are recurrent. We want to, to, to worry about the debt side of, the, of that asset price boom, especially if that is uh, pretty much putting the banking system and the basic payment system into, into, you know, into a weak situation. One more question. Gentleman back there. This is also a question for the deputy governor. Um, at the very end of your presentation, you had talked about how the loose monetary policy conditions in the U.S. was encouraging a portfolio of invest a rebalancing of investors' portfolios towards emerging markets. It was complicating uh, matters with capital inflows. How worried are you um, about? the pressures you're going to face to either impose capital controls or macroprudential measures directly in Mexico, or if you keep your capital account open, that if everyone else closes their capital account, then you'll be the, the center of even more capital inflows. Okay, I'm going to give uh, my own personal view. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to, to be the reflection of the central bank, but my, I, I think that what I'm going to say is pretty much shared by my colleagues in the, in the, in the board. And is that we have been very, you know, comfortable. We have been feeling comfortable with the, you know, purely floating exchange rate regime, and also comfortable with the relatively free capital capital account uh, uh, movements of the of the balance in the balance of payments. So uh, we think that the benefits that we have been uh, perceive, per, perceiving during these uh, last years of, of, you know, freely floating exchange rates, much more than surpass any possible short-term benefit that probably want to focus on specific export kind of sector of the economy. Uh, our studies also showed that, uh, you know, the, the appreciation of the currency doesn't have to harm the, the economy as you probably could imagine, actually the real depreciation of, of the currency in the last cycle had a negative net effect on, on GDP, considering the negative the, uh, effect on, on domestic spending. So even if, even if, if we want, uh, one wanted to just look at the short-term effects of a possible depreciation of the currency or a possible attitude towards favoring, favoring, you know, weak currency, it is not clear that uh, we, can, uh, we can gain anything even in the short term. Thank you very much to the panelists. Thank you for listening. We have a short break.
Thank you.